And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and there's been another big move in the F1 technical personnel market as McLaren signs one of the key architects of Red Bull's success, while Ferrari hopes its Spanish Grand Prix upgrade could start to transform its season. I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to explain all is Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Scott, hello. I have said hello to you already, but not long ago because I was your airport chauffeur today. Yeah, you did a good job. Um, no major no major scares, no major shunts, no minor shunts either. So, yeah, it was... Uh, Solid uh, start to your Spanish Grand Prix weekend. It was slightly questionable um, traffic, road-related paying of attention towards the end of the journey to the hotel. But overall, I think pretty solid for you. I'd I'd have you upper mid-table in my Spanish Grand Prix airport chauffeur rankings. I'm always on the brink of going the wrong way while driving through not paying attention to the routes, etc. So that's just... Or remembering instructions. Yeah, well, they have to be well-timed. It's like a rally co-driver. You've got to get it on the money. Not too early, not too late. Is that your excuse? Yeah, always blame the co-driver. That's how... uh, Very Chris Meek of you. Exactly, yeah. That's how rallying (laughs) works. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the Spanish Grand Prix and the big stories going on in the F1 world at the moment. And obviously, the largest story is probably the one that emerged after the Monaco Grand Prix, which is that Red Bull Chief Engineering Officer Rob Marshall is heading to McLaren. He'll start work in January 2024 as Technical Director Engineering and Design. How big a coup is this for McLaren? I think it's a big one because uh, he's obviously a very significant person within that Red Bull um, structure. And I think once you go past, you know, Adrian Newey, Dan Fallows, when he was there, Pierre Vaché now, it is hard to think of someone who's more part of that Red Bull inner circle from a senior technical point of view than than, than Marshall. So he has, and, and I think the impact that he's had on Red Bull was quite warmly acknowledged in the press release announcing that he'd be 
leaving the team, you know, crediting him for the work that was done to make Red Bull a race winner and then a world champion and then also giving him a lot of credit for the work that's been done in the hybrid era to to make the team more competitive again and eventually a race winner. He's got all manner of design and engineering and leadership experience from that time at Red Bull, most latterly in this even more senior role that also encompassed, I believe, quite a bit of work within Red Bull powertrain. So I suspect that there's a lot of chassis and engine integration knowledge that he'll be bringing to to McLaren. I think it's um, I think it's someone that Red Bull won't necessarily have wanted to just let go. I'm always a little bit wary when when there's something this um what looks to be so sort of almost like mutually accepted. Like it has been very, very smooth. There's been no sign of pushback from Red Bull. That means one of two things. One, it means that the person leaving is not actually that important and Red Bull's not worried about letting them go. But I don't think that's the case here because of how significant he was. The other reason is if there's something mutually beneficial about it or, you know, it's it's got Red Bull's blessing for a reason. I think that might be the case here. I, I think this might have something to do with McLaren sniffing around a Red Bull Ford engine deal for 2026. And if uh, Marshall has got that powertrain integration experience or knowledge of, of how all that's working, because I think he was part of that 2026 project, I can see Red Bull quite happily seeing him walk to a new customer. Should we put it that way? Oh, well, that's an interesting one to keep an eye on for the future. Obviously, McLaren doesn't have its engine deal for 2026 as yet. But also, the fact that it's been quite smooth suggests it's been done in the right way. Because obviously, when the Laurent Mechies to Alpha Tari, to use another example, that was one that was announced and sort of both sides almost felt that it was prematurely. Because it, when it was initially announced by uh, Alpha Tari, they announced it because... They thought, oh, it's come out, so we've got to talk about it. So they sort of obliquely pointed the finger at the Ferrari side, and then Ferrari said, well, I announced it, and we haven't sorted it out, and that's still ongoing, that that scenario. So you often get these sorts of things, but you're right, there's clearly some semblance of um, coordination. It's certainly been done in the right way at the very very least, because if someone wants to leave, as Mercedes always say, you can't stop them. You can do a counteroffer or whatever, but if they decide they want to go, they'll move on. And, of course, it might also help Red Bull in terms of the way they structure and pay. Obviously, the cost cap's a big thing. Rob Marshall, I imagine, will have been on a pretty good salary considering his seniority and longevity there. So perhaps there's a a small benefit to him moving on in terms of it allows you to redistribute that money. I don't know. But obviously, as you say, it's something that's worked for both sides in the way it's been done, even if it is a net loss for Red Bull. Yeah, it's in a nice little middle ground between what we've seen before when Red Bull have lost people within that technical department. They haven't, they don't seem to have fought it in the way they did Dan Fallows joining Aston Martin, for for example. Um, But I don't see this being brushed aside in the way say when James Key left uh, Toro Rosso a few years ago he was very much within that Red Bull family and stable and James often got talked in 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 terms like you know the next Adrian Newey he's Red Bull's future technical director but the the vibe from Red Bull when he left and it was announced he would be joining McLaren and afterwards it was always a little bit like well, if he was that good, he'd be within Red Bull Racing, not not there. And there was never actually a suggestion that Red Bull were interested in that at any point. It was just one of those kind of conclusions from the outside, if you see what I mean. I think he was very much there to be their technical director at 
what was then Toro Rosso. Yeah, but my point is is that with Marshall, you don't have anything suggesting it's being dismissed. We also have no hint of animosity. It's slap bang in the middle, which is what makes me think that there's a bit of you know, there's something mutually beneficial about this about this move. Red Bull are getting something out of it in some way. It might I might be wrong. My theory linking it to potential engine supply might be incorrect. It could be, as you say, an opportunity. Actually, we've got someone here that we wanted to put in this position or this position. Actually, he'd been sidelined a little bit from you know the here and now and was more into long term planning. We can replace that. It doesn't really matter. Maybe they've got a, uh, a well-salaried person off of the off of the books for the budget cap. There are different reasons. The, the The point is, it has been totally free of any animosity. And certainly, we shouldn't underestimate how important Rob Marshall has been. You've alluded to it there. He's been there all the way back to two thousand and six. He's been an absolutely crucial part of everything that Red Bull has done. And it's quite interesting, actually, because there's all this question of where do you get the next Newey from? And quite often, Red Bull is a logical place to poach people from if you're going to go looking for people. Now, there's only really one Adrian Newey, so none of these are Newey clones. They're people in their own right with their own skills. And as Red Bull always stress, it's not just Adrian Newey sitting there on his own doing it all. It's the team around him that, that produces everything and he feeds into that. But it's interesting to note that the McLaren structure now, we'll get onto the actual wider structure in a moment, but you've got Rob Marshall there and Peter Pedromu there, the technical director for aerodynamics, Peter Pedromu, technical director for uh, engineering. engineering. I'm showing my notes because I'm just, they've got three people with technical directors with subdivision, but basically that's the engineering side. The mechanical side is kind of a way to do that. Which is why I think that integration element comes exactly, into yeah, it. Exactly, yeah. But it also reminds me of in the first dominant spell for Red Bull, you basically had Newey on top at Red Bull and then you had Pedromu was the aero head guy and Marshall was the engineering mechanical head guy. So, those are two key long-time lieutenants. Obviously, uh, Pedromu moved a very long time ago, but it is a little bit of getting some of that Red Bull magic. So there's two of them in there. Two of the three come from that background. And the third comes from Ferrari, David Sanchez. And between the between the two big recruits that McLaren's announced as part of this technical restructuring, you've taken two senior technical figures from the two teams that have won more races than any other since this technical rule set began last year. And you can obviously argue that, you know, and I know certainly that um, insiders at Ferrari are starting to talk down Sanchez and that he wasn't actually that important, he wasn't that good, and it's a good thing for them that he's leaving, which I think is a, a bit of a classic case of um, bad thing, not bad, talking down at a departure. I think I think it's, uh, again, we can go into that McLaren structure in a little bit more detail, but I think just in terms of what they're trying to achieve with it and... Andrea Stella's vision for it I think Sanchez was already quite a good um, a, 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 a good level statement signing bringing someone in from Ferrari to to take one of those senior roles but the fact that they've now upgraded um, the the position that, that Marshall will have because it was originally going to be held by I, I'm really sorry I always butcher um, Neil's surname Neil Haldy um, he was going to have this role initially and now he's going to be Marshall's deputy but bringing in Sanchez was already one statement signing Marshall's a, I think another level and if nothing else it says that there's a, a good calibre of F1 engineer that's buying into what McLaren's trying to do they might just be throwing an absolute tonne of money at it I'd be surprised if it was that simplistic but it, it suggests that there's a project there that is actually worth these senior people going for because when you're in a position like McLaren's in the way that you can get 
you know, top talent from other teams on board is by offering them something that they don't have where they are now. And it's difficult to do that when that person is a senior within the hierarchy as Marshall was at Red Bull, but they've clearly offered him something within this project where he looks at that and just goes, I fancy being part of that. Yeah, it's funny to see that. I think there are a few comments from Helmut Marko about Red Bull struggling to keep hold of people, which just made me think of when Red Bull were really establishing themselves. They wound up a lot of teams with their really aggressive poaching, and it's just one of those things that happens. And obviously, I do think this is quite an unstable time in terms of personnel, partly because of that cost cap, because it is very, very tricky. And that cost cap has an impact right the way down the structure, because there's also people down the ranks, you know, on the shop floor, as it were, if you want to think of it that way, doing really important work. And there are concerns about it being difficult to get pay rises and that kind of thing to them because of the, the lack of headroom in the in the cost cap now. From my experience, organisations will always find some reason why a, a pay rise is so difficult to, uh, to do. But it, it does create an extra little challenge working within those cost cap. But just talking about the, uh, the structure they've got, they do have three people with a technical director job title. And we've referenced two of the subdivisions. Obviously, Sanchez is technical director, car concepts and performance. Now, I think how McLaren goes is really interesting because I have thought for a while that the single technical director job is bafflingly broad in terms of how much you've got to keep on top of, even with department heads reporting to you. It's such a big thing now that it makes sense to break it down. And the way they've broken it down into effectively aero, car concept and engineering, let's call it that, is very logical. But obviously you then get the problem of overlap and gaps between who's doing what. This is actually one of the things that Alpine are trying to sharpen up with their reorganisation at the moment, which isn't a major personnel thing, but just trying to make sure that you've got everything covered and you're not covering the same ground. So I'm really interested to see how it works because I think the the sort of top-line job titles, they make sense. The idea, the philosophy behind it makes sense. But at the same time, we do know from the past, when they had their matrix structure, Adrian Newey was criticised, what do you call it, the department heads, the Mullers. I think he referred to them as in his uh, in his book. He wasn't very complimentary about that. So very interested to see. Wretchedly unworkable. That was the phrase he that used. That was a good one, yes. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's the real thing because the more people you have kind of sharing that technical directorship, the trickier it, it is to make it work, but the better it can work. And if you've got the right people, the right structure, the right management, you can do it right. Where it becomes difficult is is that if there's conflict or misunderstanding about who does what, that's when things get politics-y, et cetera. Well, that's where obviously the, the, the key problem with the, the matrix system was um, originally was that slight blurring of lines who's responsible for what we don't really know oh that problem that's arrived that's definitely not my and the finger pointing and 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 whatnot um one of the things that has struck me about this is it i i think it's it feels really similar to what ferrari's had for for a few years since Matteo bonotto took the team principal role and they didn't have an out and out stated technical director because the team principal was taking a degree of interest in what the technical structure was doing and and they had that that Bonotto had his his heads whether it was Car, uh, Cardile or Sanchez or, or whoever um and you might have within that structure a sort of de facto technical director maybe one of those three at McLaren will also be slightly above all the others I actually think it might be more that Andrea Stella the team principal will be more actively involved on that side than his predecessor Andrea Seidel was in which case you'd as you say, that technical director, one single technical director can be so broad. Can you actually achieve that just with a slightly more engaged team principal who, and and then as long as you've got a strong 
good, uh, well, well communicating committee, maybe maybe that can work. It, it worked in terms of the quality of car that Ferrari has been able to build at times over the last few years. Ferrari's problem seems to be just an inherent internal inability to develop a car properly for a season, which goes back, I think, a decade or more. So maybe may, maybe McLaren's seen that, Stella's seen that, and gone, I, I think that can work in practice. I think that's what we do need in practice. And they just back themselves to make it work that extra few percent more than, than say, Ferrari has done. And we should remember at Red Bull, yes, Adrian Newey is effectively the main man, but he's not a dictator, technically. He does. He's done some of the design bits himself. He makes suggestions, gives feedback. He, he sort of... But the way you characterise it, almost you'll say, well, have you thought about doing that? Or is that, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe you do that. Here's an idea for you to optimise and work on. He's very um, he's very much feeding creativity and ideas into the system, not ordering everyone around. So Red Bull, actually, despite the focus on Adrian Newey, I would say has been working this kind of structure, this multiple head structure, but just with Newey as this kind of this kind of figure feeding into it. He's, he's pretty unique in terms of the way he works. So you can't have any of that. But but I, I do see that as not so different to what McLaren's trying to achieve. I guess it depends because, like you say, you have that senior figure like Nui at Red Bull. So it's where, where someone like Pierre Vache, who is the technical director at, at Red Bull, the fact that there's a Nui type above him who's more engaged than, say, James Allison was when he was chief technical officer at uh, Mercedes in that like-for-like like role with what Nui's done. It, it wasn't really like-for-like. Like. So the fact that Nui's up there much more engaged not necessarily 24 7 365 but certainly more than a few hours a week or whatever it was Allison was doing at, at Mercedes and then you've got Vache in that technical director role but it's not the same kind of technical director role as say uh, Matt Harmon type has at uh, Alpine it, the, not every team's going to have that spread of responsibilities done in in the same way so it will be interesting to see because obviously for example with McLaren someone like David Sanchez doesn't join until the start of next year anyway so they've got this interim interim period where they're they don't have that structure really working full gas and it's going to take some time to to, to play out but at well, least they've they're... got the Oatley helping out now at the moment uh, a kind of name from the past in Formula 1 but he's been with McLaren for a long time so there is this almost interregnum yeah exactly so it'll be interesting to see how how that evolves and how that impacts the development of this year's car certainly the the latter stages of this year i'd expect to see sort of better quality of upgrades if this structure is really going to work and then even the launch spec of the 24 car is going to be compromised because you don't have exact absolutely everybody in place it's all feeding into that element of putting a lot of pressure on 2025 yet again we're talking about almost mclaren eventually getting it right but again just going back to the person that we're talking about here in Marshall, it, signing someone of that calibre, it's just another excuse that's taken away from McLaren. Like They have to get this right because they're hiring people that have done a very good job elsewhere. Yeah, I think 25, as you say, huge amount of pressure on them there. They might be able to bat it back a little bit till 26 because of the new rules, but you will need a strong performance in 25. They, can, they don't need to be a championship winning team then. But if they're going to be a championship winning team in the new rules era that follows after that, then they're going to have to be pretty strong in, in 2025, way stronger than they are at the moment. But yeah, a good move from McLaren. Let's see how it works out. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, we had Mercedes, Scott, with a major upgrade at Monaco. That was a big talking point there. In Spain this weekend, it's Ferrari's turn. So what are you expecting to see? And does it have the potential to turn Ferrari's season round? I think this weekend's upgrade is going to be almost entirely bodywork related. We've had Fred Vasseur quite emphatically dismissing suggestions that there might be something to do with the rear suspension. Well, there was a lot of talk about this. And I remember saying on a previous podcast, I couldn't really see what they could do because you you can't do that much with the rear suspension in season. You can do aero shrouds and the odd thing, but yeah, I, I was always slightly puzzled with the, there's so much talk about that. Yeah, and strange to me that then it gets sort of almost spoken as fact just because the rumours have emerged somewhere in, in Italy, which, you know, speculation abounds, doesn't it, over Ferrari? Yeah, it does. I mean, maybe there will be some modified rear suspension. You never know. He could have been... A, he didn't 100% say no rear suspension. He said, well, I didn't say there was going to be. Then he specifically referenced it was a bodywork upgrade. So it does sound like there won't be, but... You always just keep that little wait and see until we see the bits. But yeah, it does seem to be that um, that was one of the mark. The rear suspension changes I would have thought would come for next season. Yeah, so let's see exactly what's brought this weekend. I can't really say too much about what they will bring purely because I don't know. What I can say is what they won't bring, which is I'm not expecting a Mercedes-style massive um, visual departure from what they had on um, the previous race in, in, in Monaco. I'd be interested to see where they go, what they consider to be a bodywork change, how significant it'll be. Um, but Ferrari has emphatically ruled out doing an in-season concept change. That, And I kind of understand it. If they started something like that now or even recently, you know, Vasseur said it will take probably until October to bring it to the track. And I don't think he's exaggerating because I think it's a three or four month job, maybe a little bit less, maybe maybe three months, depending on exactly how much you want to change in season. But you're looking at getting it on the car for the final quarter, absolute maximum, but probably less than that. The return on investment is not going to be very high. It's not the same as Mercedes because Mercedes started a lot of this work before the car had even run on track. And it was only it was getting the car on track in testing and then the first race or two that then informed them about other areas areas that they need to to work on oh this doesn't work either let's incorporate that into the work we're doing now so yeah mercedes introducing that major upgrade at the end of may makes sense because they've been working on it since probably the start of february maybe mid-february at the absolute absolute latest maybe even earlier potentially yeah exactly so they've been working on it for three or four months so ferrari can't just turn around now let's say for example the the whatever upgrades they have this weekend don't work they can't then turn around and go right that's it mercedes and Aston Martin have got it right. We should have abandoned this concept a long time ago, but we're finally going to abandon it now. We'll run this for as long as um, it takes for us to get the new one ready, and we'll have the new one as soon as we can. They can't do that because there's no point. I think they need to focus that kind of change on the 2024 car, especially because they 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 do have a higher base with this car than the one that Mercedes got rid of. I, I know that Ferrari have been massively underperforming in races and, and doing a bad job of weekend execution overall in general. But that car has been a consistent front row threat in in qualifying. And 
The one thing I will say in agreement with Vasseur when he's been defending the performance of that car is I would agree that it is it is clearly a sign of some potential in that package that it can be so quick over one lap. What's baffling is that they just can't translate that into into the, the Sunday race pace. And I just never really buy into it being as simple as Ferrari trying to brush it off as just, well, the car's just not quite as fast. So it's not tyre dig that we have a problem with. It's actually just the car's not that quick or anything like that. I think that's letting them off too much. And, yeah, and the other thing that has to be borne in mind is we've talked about the reasons for a few months why the Red Bull's stronger in the race than in qualifying. So there's a, a bit of a moving target there between qualifying and the race that will also lead to this inconsistency that Fred Vasseur always refers to. So yeah, I'm I'm not completely convinced that they have a, a exactly the right direction there. I think not just saying we're going to change everything in season if you're not starting early enough makes sense. But I'm very interested to know we'll know in I don't know however many ten months or whatever when the new car appears how different things are. I tried to get a little bit of a hint about the visuals of the car because he said it uh, obviously already in the winter they're already doing plenty of work on it. I didn't give too much away, but Vasseur's very much staying away from this idea they need a big concept change in order to to transform how they're doing. But, you know, you do wonder if they do because they're pretty much standing alone with that concept they've got. The only other team that's in the same direction is Haas, and Haas is kind of forced to go that way because it's pretty much mechanically a Ferrari. Mm. Exactly, it's that underlying architecture, isn't it? Um, The one thing I think does need to change, and... You can argue this is concept related, maybe not necessarily in the end product with the design that they're going for, but maybe the the concept of, you know, the philosophy of actually the development process, because everything we've heard from the Ferrari drivers this year hints at a car that's quite peaky and maybe when it's in a sweet spot has a lovely amount of downforce and is very usable, but it's on that knife edge and falls out of that window really quickly, which is why you see big, big swings in performance. And the consistency that's been talked about isn't just a all run to run or anything like that. It's not just lap to lap. It's caught, it's through corner inconsistency. It would just, the, the rear will just go. I remember in terms of that qualifying to race performance offset, your best situation is on fresh tyres. Fresh tyre grip fresh cover off tires. <laughs> Yeah, doubly so. The fact that they work better when they're taught like C5, it's a great tyre for uh, for Ferrari, the C4 as well. Go to Barcelona, C321 this weekend. Not perhaps so good. So everything points to what you've just said, it being that kind of car, which I don't think is... Vasseur uses the word inconsistent. I actually don't... Because to me, inconsistent would mean it's kind of up and down a bit all over the map. But there seems to me to be a pattern there that doesn't tally with it just being some little magical setup thing or little tweak you do aerodynamically that suddenly means the car's great over a race stint as well. That's what concerns me. Yeah, and I think it's clear that they don't have that. I don't think they've emphasised... I don't think anyone's emphasised platform control and and that mechanical platform in the way that Red Bull has. But it feels like... It feels like Ferrari has the the lowest grasp of the top four teams for how to get the most out of that car over a full weekend, session to session, and also just manage that performance qualifying to race. I, I sometimes get the impression from Ferrari that they also don't really know why they're so fast over one lap and not so fast over a race stint. Whereas, as you say, we've we've had reasons for from all the other teams. We we know that the, the, the inherent characteristics of that Red Bull don't lend themselves necessarily to switching everything on to be mega fast over one lap, but it's brutally devastating over a stint. Aston Martin, Team Silverstone, for as long as I can remember, predating me in Formula 1, certainly, 
has always prioritised a Sunday car over a Saturday car. So there's an element there. And and the Mercedes, I mean, how I think every probably every F1 podcast mentioning Mercedes that you and I have ever recorded together probably involves Mercedes being a, a team that, having spent so long trying to get on top of their tyre usage woes early on in the hybrid era and even before then has now maybe gone the other way to the point where how many times have we spoken about them having tyre warm-up issues and they're actually much better on a on a Sunday than they are over over one lap these these three teams all lean that way and Ferrari is a massive outlier because it skews heavily in the other direction devastating over one lap and just to support the suggestion it's concept related, what's the team in the midfield that's devastatingly fast over one lap but pretty useless in the races? Yeah, Haas has got the same characteristics. So yeah, I think you're definitely pointing in the right sort of direction there. And that again comes back to, like you say, some of the assumptions and the processes they use to drive the development and what they're looking at, which keep our data. You know, no team is stupid enough these days just to look at a couple of peak points aero wise and say that's great because they know that the consistency through that is important but there's clearly something being missed there's a focus that's not quite right at ferrari which is a shame because they have shown that they can produce good cars and it's just frustrating they're not able to be consistently up there but i don't think we'll see any massive transformation in performance in spain this weekend but it'll be interesting to see if they can get with some developments, a little bit of a step and just it won't, it won't take much for them just to take a little bit of a step forward. And they need to because Mercedes has brought their upgrade. Aston Martin's got more parts this weekend. So Alpine as well. Yes. Alpine were looking very competitive relative to Ferrari the last couple of events. Exactly. And so this isn't about Ferrari taking on Red Bull. This is about Ferrari trying to consolidate a position in that, that group of three that's battling for seconds. So, yeah, there's a lot at stake for them. And I guess the fact that this year we're talking about them hanging on in that battle for second rather than a championship fight being sustained as we were 12 months ago that tells you where they are well last year they nearly finished third in the two horse race and then this year they've got the second fastest car quite comfortably on on average and they're probably fourth best at the moment well they are fourth best they're, they're fourth in the constructor championship for a, for a reason and i'm not 100 percent convinced that unless that unless they do Im- improve that car I, th- I think there are going to be other races where alpine are better than them as well when you look at it the way mercedes go they keep ticking over with the points they'll always even on a difficult weekends come the end of it they'll have a decent number whereas ferrari kind of the difference between a good and a bad weekend is just wildly all over the shop unfortunately so yeah that's something i need to work on as well as there's plenty that still needs to be improved there at uh, ferrari maybe this weekend will be the start of that We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. 
Easier said done. Well, Scott, we'd be remiss not to talk about the track changes, Barcelona. It's really a return to the old in many ways in Barcelona with that turn 13, fast right-hander restored, the chicane gone, and that also makes the last corner into something a little bit of a different challenge because of the fast approach. So what do you make of that? Do you think this is a good move? I think it's good a good move in the sense that I think Given that the change to the adding that chicane in t- between those final two corners, it did nothing to improve racing. Uh, if anything, I think it probably made it slightly worse, especially with this generation of car being so awkward, cumbersome, slow, whatever word you want to use to describe it through that through that chicane. So, it's I'm glad that we're getting rid of it because there's a faint hope that it might improve racing but the problem isn't really in whatever combination of final corner you have it's more in the fact that you've got that run down to turn one which is then a, a medium high speed corner and there's not enough of a braking zone to contest it's so easy to defend there as well yeah exactly so actually i think what i'm probably happiest with about this change is that for the people watching especially the people that are there trackside it's just a better spectacle the the, the cars are more impressive if you go for a medium high high speed corner those last two corners will be they will just look better f1 looks this generation of f1 look it does not look that impressive at low speed at all it actually look it can be quite surprising jarring when you go trackside and you're just like oh these things are so so lazy so i think that's a generally good thing and also it it is an extra challenge i mean i think Charles leclerc said it the, the front left is going to be absolutely crying by the end of a lap now and it's just that little slight extra physical challenge for the drivers as well isn't it because i reckon those last two corners versus the layout that we've just replaced are going to be a bit more painful on the old neck oh yeah well i was speaking to one driver who uh raced in the early spanish grand prix at that circuit uh, he said that that last corner was pretty heavy on the neck obviously drivers as a rule are fitter now but yeah a full race distance on that will be tricky obviously as you say you know it moves the the tire sensitivity to the front left whereas previously on a qualifying lap the key was to make sure you had those rears not too overheating to get you that traction off the last corner. I don't think it'll make any difference to the racing whatsoever. As you say, it's all about turn one. So I think it's a bit of a neutral change in terms of I don't think it fundamentally changes what's on offer in the Grand Prix, but it is a nice spectacular part of the track to see. So it's nice to see Barcelona, well, I say restore to what it originally was for F1. That's not true, partly because they already changed as many years ago, but also turn 10 a few years ago changed as well. So it's not the original track or anything, but yeah, that, that last double right-hander will be uh, pretty spectacular and the drivers like it. So it's, it's a, it's a, I'd say it's a nice change rather than a significant change. Let's put it that way. I think the biggest loss is obviously, unfortunately, and this, this is to the detriment of F1 fans across the world. We've lost the um, incredibly tenuous uh, preview pieces for this weekend. Um, where people are trying to you know make us make assessments based on a you know a car oh, a car happens to have good low speed performance um so it's really good there it used to be for a while when the, the races were the other way around it used to work in reverse didn't it with spain and monaco where that final sector was then the the the, the preview to end all previews for how a, a, a car would go in the final sector in barcelona would determine how good they are in in monaco and i always i just always felt that that final I always felt that final set to that final chicane just... I, I personally felt it created 
quite frustrating narratives. The, the Monaco to Spain one was the obvious one, but the one I'm mainly referring to is that just this uh, over-exaggeration of just like, a, oh, how much it reveals of a car's sort of low-speed performance. You, as you said, that having that, whether you had those rear tyres alive or not, was basically the be-all and end-all of your performance in that, that chicane. And the final set's is much bigger than the chicane as well. So I'm just, I'm just glad that that, sort of annoying little tweak has, little quirk has been taken out of it yeah it's one of those things that was a useful gentle pointer but then also once you get into the Pirelli era obviously the Bridgestone are still required some management but it became sort of weaker again and then it just suddenly turns into well whatever the sector order is that's going to be the pace order at Monaco but it's like well no that's, that's not how it works so yeah it's quite good to get the uh, the overplaying of that out of the way so yeah I think it's a it's a perfectly reasonable change and I think probably generally people will like it although I do think it's a bit of a myth that, that exists that fast corners are difficult and slow corners are easy they're far from it the slow corners it's a lot of time to be made up or lost in there so I actually think it makes just as a global driving challenge probably the the Barcelona circuit actually a little bit less varied but yeah I'm not going to lament that chicane because it's a tricky one it's probably one of those proper cumbersome curb clambering sort of ones and yeah I don't think anybody will be uh, reminiscing and missing that one so yeah good move for F1 well thanks Scott for your insight we'll have all the coverage from Barcelona on therace.com don't forget the hyphen if you're heading there have a listen to our other podcasts including our IndyCar podcast with Indy 500 winner Joseph Newgarden guesting on the latest episode and also check out our YouTube channel now it's on to the next race so stay with us for everything you need to know about the Spanish Grand Prix The Athletic.